Okay, welcome to uh, today's session. It's Reasonable Attorney's Fees and Justice Court and EDMS Work Issues. Uh, we're going to start with uh, the Reasonable Attorney's Fees. For those of you who get the materials on Hightail, I had to move it to a different Hightail link. Uh, that link is contained on the podcast notes, and I'll uh, make sure that we get the new link emailed to everybody. Our first presenter today is Stephen Gattel. Uh, Steve is a longtime attorney and uh, has done serious litigation, uh, also um, a mediator and arb arbitrator. Uh, he is now serving us as a uh, pro tem. I know Steve going way back from the uh, State Bar uh, um, Fee Arbitration Program, and he is the chair of the Fee Arbitration Program, so he uh, is an expert on attorney's fees. Let's welcome Mr. Gattel. Thank you, and, and to the extent this is being recorded, I want to clarify a couple of things. Um, because I found out today I don't have a CLE requirement, I'm no longer practicing law. And since I stopped practicing in 2012 and a full-time neutral, hear that, State Board? Uh, and a pro tem, um, I don't have to have CLE, but I do. So I just couldn't, I couldn't process my affidavit this year. Um, this is sort of a reprise actually hopefully not a reprise of a program that was given in 2016 and another one that was given in 2018. Uh, the one in 2016 admittedly was so bad I almost left in the middle. I think that would be appropriate since I was giving it. Um, the one last summer in June was a little better, but now that I've been sitting as a pro tem, I have a better appreciation of, of what you folks have to deal with and what hopefully you need when you do uh, have attorney's fees issues come before you. So I'm hopefully, th hopefully this one will be a little better. Um, and, I, and I put this in an order that doesn't start with the, with the ethical rules. It starts with some of the more general things that you should know about. I've also structured the, the papers you have in a manner where I cite cases. And if you need to utilize uh, in a situation where you're making awards of attorney's fees, and you use the form, it provides hopefully a ready reference that you can cite cases uh, or refresh your recollection of uh, this afternoon's program to assist you in making your decision. Okay, first thing is, you know, what do the, what's the court going to receive? Um, I'm sure you've all heard of the China Doll Affidavit from counsel, which is basically a detailed billing statement um, asking for the attorney's fees. Um, in the, 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 it was uh, China Schweiger versus China Doll, um, the court found the submission was clearly insufficient because they didn't say the hourly billing rate, they didn't show the legal services, um, they didn't show the dates the, the fees were provided. And this is a 1983 case, and, and as chair of the fee arbitration committee, I'm always amazed that attorneys still don't get it. We're still getting um, uh, fee arbitration awards, and those are written ones, and I get them every week, the ones that were issued each week, so I read them, and it's, you know, probably reading... Um, easily 50 to 100 a year, maybe a little less than 100. Um, and there's still attorneys who don't get the way you're supposed to submit fees or, as we'll see, um, not, not requesting reasonable attorney's fees. So what happens? You know, you, first you get the, the China Doll affidavit, and then you have to determine whether the fees should be awarded. Basically, the question is, are the fees reasonable and accurate as related to the work performed? And what next? Well, there's a form for that which is great. Um, oops, you know, there's a ruling on attorney's fees form, right? You know, this was put together a few years ago after, I think, the Geller versus Less case, which is cited. 
Um, and we're going to go into the in more depth into this form. It's with your materials. I think it should be in probably the back of your materials, the actual full form. I just uh, try to cut as much as I could so I could put it on a slide. Couple, and what we're going to do now is go through some of the principles of attorney's fees. Um, and these, we'll get into this in more de detail, but attorney's fees, when they're being requested, it makes no difference if the client's paying for them, if they're paid for by someone for the client, or they're being paid for by the adverse party where you're awarding attorney's fees. The obligations of the attorney and the ability to award attorney's fees make no difference. The fact that the person who you're ordering to pay is not the client doesn't change whether or not the fees are reasonable. Um, and this goes back to the, the basic uh, provision in the ethical rules and in the Ian Ray Schwartz case um, that fee agreements are not ordinary business contracts. Um, normal contract law does not apply. You make an agreement to purchase a car for $10,000 um, and that car doesn't run, you go back and you say, uh, I, you know, I want a refund, that's fine. Uh, but you've signed a contract agreeing to take that car. The car happens to run great and you made a real storm and deal on a used car that you find out it's a, you know, it was only one of two made in the world and it's worth $100,000, uh, you get to keep that. Uh, the attorney's relationship with their client and the attorney's relationship with fees is not an ordinary business contract. Um, and that's because the ethical rules say the lawyer shall make, not make an agreement for, that means at the outset, their agreement, uh, charge, in other words, send a bill for, or collect an unreasonable fee or an unreasonable amount for expenses. This is a mandatory Supreme Court rule. The ethical rules are approved and by the Supreme, our state Supreme Court. Um, and with regard, I think, to uh, Justice Court, or court, courts generally, the, the collection prohibition is probably the most important. Because notwithstanding what the agreement says, notwithstanding uh, what the attorney may charge, um, the collection, what the attorney actually receives, must not be unreasonable. Um, and as I said, the rules don't distinguish between who pays, whether it's the client or a third party. Um, it's an ethical responsibility that the attorney only collect a reasonable fee. So what should a judge do? Well, first, you know, basically, some of the basic questions of what a judge should do when getting a fee application is look at the fee agreement. I, I've seen a number, not too many, a um, couple when I go through EDMS, um, and I'm sort of, as a pro tem, particularly a new pro tem, I'm sort of hesitant to uh, make a determination because I know each judge has their own, uh, I would imagine each judge has their own views of it, so that seems something I should leave to the judge. Maybe I get more familiar with it, I, and the judge agrees I, I would make determinations on fees. But look at the fee agreement. I haven't seen too many fee agreements being submitted. I've always wondered, on some of these cases we see, it's highly unlikely that the losing party who may be assessed fees going to be, is going to be able to pay it. I always thought, does the client have to pay that to the attorney or is there a reduced sum? I've never seen a fee agreement that addresses that uh, because I haven't ever seen a fee agreement with a fee application. But that actually is, you should be able to get something that shows what the attorney has agreed with, with his client. Yes, sir. So what I'm seeing from one of the attorneys is that the agreement is 25%. 
just across the board, 25%. And so what they'll do with their China doll is make it equal 25%, whatever the principal amount they're going after. Okay, when you say the China doll, so they'll have a contemporaneous time records? Yeah, but it's, it's obviously created just to make equal the, that amount. Because it shows each time it's, no matter what the amount is, it equals exactly what the 25% So the, they'll say, you know, file, you know, prepared complaint to this. They'll break it out, right. but at the end of the day, it always comes out 25%. <laughs> Interesting well, question. They write it in the petition that it's 25%. That's the agreement that they have a contract with the, the plaintiff. Right. But it may, and maybe I'm not understanding exactly, do they say, we collected $2,000, we agreed to 25%, therefore I want $500? Or do they say, do they break out exactly what they did for that? <clears throat> okay. Then the question is, is it accurate, which would be my, my skeptical view of the world. The second, is it reasonable? Uh, and we'll get into the, the activities. Most, no, mostly they're not, because it could be a $8,000 claim, and then they're getting 25%, and it just work. Right, and we'll talk about that. Did they actually do the work? Which it, it is good. I didn't realize that they actually said in that in that area that it said contractual agreements that are not reasonable. Right. Do you that's that's the key factor and we'll get we'll get into that in more extensive detail. But the fee agreement is, is yeah. useful. Can I make a comment a little yes, bit? please. The the ones that I've seen come in, you know, they'll say X amount of dollars because it's their percentage rate, but then they'll come back and they'll actually give you the amount of time they spent, and it turns out to be 625 bucks. Which is 25%. Even their, then their form of judgment says their number, or let you put plug in any yeah. whatever number you feel. Yeah. So, But that we'll get into that in a few minutes as to what are they submitting, which causes concern. I deal a lot with the Bar's Ethics Councils. I've gone through about three or four of them. They, they just got a new one. Um, because the others go on to bigger and better things. And, you know, I'm surprised at some of the ethical issues that arise that you think people should know better, but it's sort of like, I lived in Boston in a townhouse when I was in law school, downtown, and you know, someone was breaking downstairs and a cop came in, you know, with big guys with a motorcycle cop with the big boots that were tall and my five foot tall wife, and said, so, I don't know why anyone would live downtown Boston, it's so dangerous. And the thing being that, you know, all he saw were, you know, crimes. You know, maybe it's just because I, every week I'm reading problems with, with attorney's fees that I have that, you know, view of, view of life, which probably is unfair. But um, there are some concerns, and we'll get into it, as to what lawyers are supposed to do when they submit this stuff. Um, there's, there's something I, I was going to talk about later. We're going to talk about now. I taught ethics at Arizona Summit Law School. And there's this, right at the beginning, it's the business profession dichotomy. Is the practice of law a business, or is it a profession? And that's been a big conflict. I, I remember having a conversation 30, over 35 years ago with my wife's cousin, who's a lawyer, um, went to you know, a very good law school. He, he viewed the practice of law as a business. Others view it as a profession. Our Supreme Court, I believe, view it as a profession. Um, it's not something that you do to get, just simply get money. It's, there are certain ethical rules. There's a higher authority we deal with, and as lawyers and as judges looking at what lawyers are seeking, and one of the things that, you know, the more pedestrian item is the attorney's fees. They have to be reasonable. Uh, when I was in law school, well before they started the ABA with its ethical rules, they had some canons back then. We're talking oh, over 40 years ago. Um, if you ring the bell on a contingency matter, 
you kept it because the theory being, well, that would allow you to take cases that were more problematic. You know, there was a chance you went with. Well, maybe someone figured out, you know, attorneys weren't taking more problematic cases. They'd ring the bell and keep it. In fact, I know attorneys who are PI attorneys in New York, they're appalled at the fact that we, and we'll get into this in a few minutes, that our state Supreme Court requires attorneys to look after the representation is complete to see whether or not the fees were reasonable. That's an obligation that all attorneys have, and as judges, that's, that's what we would all do to see if the fees are reasonable. Um, I know a firm uh, where the, it was a one-third contingency on what was the million-dollar dispute. Well, it turns out there was a little quirk in the tax code that allowed the matter to be resolved after maybe 25, 30 hours. $300,000 for, for 20, you know, 20 or so hours was not reasonable. The fee on that was insignificant compared to the recovery because that was the ethical thing to do. And so I guess what I'm, maybe I'm preaching too much, that you know, judges should do is look at, okay, this is the rule, this is what the Supreme Court has directed us to do, and you'll see some harsh results that the courts have, have determined. Um, but the rule is fees have to be reasonable, and the, the attorney is required to show us whether the fees are reasonable. Um, okay, so you look at the invoice, you know, the billing statement. You know, is it clear as to what they're billing for? Look at the hourly rate, and we'll get into that in a few months. Uh, look at the time spent. Did it take three hours to produce a complaint in an HOA matter when you've had this firm in front of you five, 10, 15 times, <clears throat> and the complaint is the same except for some names and some numbers? You know, are they charging for work that was just repeated from someone else off their template. Um, so the question is, when you look at what's submitted, is what's submitted reasonable and accurate? And the time spent can be accurate, but is it reasonable? Um, and the hourly rate may be the attorney's regular rate, but it could be not reasonable for the work they're performing. And we'll get into that in a few minutes too. Um, the, the primary ethical obligation is that fees and expenses must be reasonable. As we go, I, when I was preparing to do this, I was going to say, what I'm going to say now is towards the end. We're going to go through a number of slides, a number of cases. You always see that word, reasonable, reasonable, reasonable. That's the, that's the touchstone of, of what we're doing here. Okay, fee agreements must be in writing. Um, it has to be provided at the beginning of the representation or shortly thereafter. It need not be... Um, Formal, it can be an email. Yes, we're gonna do this for you. But it must say the scope of the representation. What are the legal services being provided? This thing, you know, for legal services rendered $40,000 doesn't fly anymore. It doesn't work that way anymore. The basis of the rate or the fee. You know, my hourly rate is so much. And the expenses for what the client is responsible for. An attorney providing legal services at an hourly rate in the fee agreement can only charge for the provision of legal services. We'll, I'll show you a case from that. Um, you can't charge for overtime, you can't charge for legal research, you can't charge for messenger services unless it's in the fee agreement. I said at the outset, the Supreme Court is very, you know, very, well, maybe I didn't say it, but I'll say it now. The, these rules are very client-centric, and I'll broaden that to be very whoever's paying the bill-centric. You have to, t other than the provision of legal services, everything else you have to put in the agreement. I'm going to charge you for this, I'm going to charge you for that. 
Um, and sometimes you see some foolishness, and I've seen this as a fee arbitrator, and we're going to charge you for long-distance phone calls. Who gets bill whoever gets charged is the person making the call for long-distance phone calls anymore. It just doesn't happen. Um, I had one, um, this was someone who purported to be an expert or supposedly an expert in employment law. Uh, he charged for purchasing uh, two treatises on employment discrimination law, which is sort of scratch head. But then we show up at the hearing and he says, well, Your Honor, well, Mr. Arbitrator, um, I'm not going to charge for both books because after the case was concluded, I sent back one of the books and I got a credit. Okay, so you used the book and you sent it back. That sounds like something uh, an ethical attorney ought to do, you know, after you've used it and got the benefit of it. But that's a whole other story. Um, so those three that are in, they're highlighted in your materials and they're on red on the screen. A um, couple of things that are very important. <coughs> this is important. If there's a contingency fee agreement, it must be signed by the client. And I'm going to show you a very harsh result when it wasn't and fee sharing between lawyers and different firms. We're going to get to that in a few minutes about what is fee sharing and can there be, you know, the normal referral fee, which is in fact fee sharing. Now, I sent you a case, so I want a piece of that at the end. Well, in Arizona, that's, that's uh, uh, forbidden if there's no work by that attorney. Um, okay, what if there's no writing? Well, in this contingent fee matter, Levine versus Harrelson, Miller, Pitt, Feldman, and McElnerney, um, there was no written fee agreement signed by the client for the contingent fee. As I, you know, you do the work, you'll get a percentage. What did the court do? The attorney got Zippo. Didn't even get quantum merit. Um, quantum merit would be, you know, whatever is deserved. I mean, the, the attorney did work, got some, you know, got some uh, result out of there. Um, and the court would not award fees. Um, there were some other factors involved that mitigated against the award, but uh, that was the case. And in fact, I'm aware of an arbitration case where there were no fees awarded because, again, um, there was no writing. And the Supreme Court says there has to be a writing. That's less important that I this, let me amend that. There's no case law that says if there's no writing in an hourly rate case that the attorney gets no fee or that quantum merit doesn't apply. And quantum merit is, is, says up there is as much as deserved. That's sort of a situation, maybe an example would be, you go off on a two-week vacation um, and you come home and someone's painted your house. Well, it's because the painting company painted the wrong house. Well, the paint company, although you never had a contract with that person, may be entitled to something. At least maybe the court could say, okay, you get the cost of the paint. We're not going to give you any profit. We're not going to give you, you know, your, the time you spent. But, you know, the, the, the homeowner got the benefit of a new paint shop. So we'll give you something, you know, or something like that. No quantum error, at least in Arizona, in the appellate courts, for a contingent fee agreement where it was not signed by the client. Um, as I said, we'll be on the lookout for a case where um, there's no agreement whether, you know, an hourly rate doesn't have to be signed by the client, but does have to be in writing. Um, and that was a rule change, I want to say 10 years ago, where before that you didn't even need a written agreement, but the Supreme Court put that into the rules. Um, okay, full disclosure. The client, the attorney has to disclose the basis on what the client's going to be billed, the professional time and other charges. Um, 
you know, and you charge an unreasonable or unethical or an unethical fee when you bill more time than was spent on the on the matter. And that's what I think I was talking about earlier, where you get these, you know, form HOA or other type of cases, and they're charging three hundred dollars for an hour to prepare the complaint, and you know it didn't take an hour. And I would ask the attorney, did it really take that much time? You know, who did this? Say so you've been before me. I see you every, you know, couple of weeks here on these trials, or I see, you know, however frequently it is, um, and this looks like the same complaint you had a couple of months ago. You know, did you, is this a whole new complaint using a template? Did it really take that long? Did you do it? Did your paralegal do it? I think those are appropriate questions. Um, and, and just as an aside, um, you know, the, the question arises, well, when the attorney comes back in to tell you all these questions, and all of a sudden you're looking at the uh, fee, you know, the fee request, and you're seeing questions there, and the attorney is not getting the better part of it, and they come back and ask for the time spent to justify their attorney's fees, I would say there's no requirement that you award them those since they were the one that caused the extra time. So, I, you know, I, you have, I, I would expect you would have a lot of flexibility and discretion on whether in the amount of attorney's fees you, you award. Um, you know, in that case, uh, the billing fixed increments is unethical. Half an hour for all telephone calls, no matter the length. Um, I remember years ago, I, I represented uh, a firm, national firm, but they were headquartered in Chicago, and I got a call from the in-house counsel. He said, Steve, I, I got your bill today, and I was looking at it, I had a question. I said, okay. And I was a very new attorney, and I was worried, you know, I didn't want to lose the client because I messed up on the bill. He says, you billed me two-tenths of an hour for, for a telephone conversation. I said, yeah, I, said, I remember the call. We, you know, we only talked for about 10 minutes. He said, I've never been billed less than a half an hour for a call. You know, he'd been dealing with big firms out of New York and Chicago and in LA, and they were all building, you know, half hour to pop. Um, you know, I've seen, you know, reviewing deposition notice, you know, half an hour. Well, I would put them in my bills, but I would no charge them because basically, oh, I got a deposition, I was, you know, send this to the client, put it on my calendar, you know, and that was it. Um, you know, so you, know, you have to look at things like that. Um, block billing, that's where you get, um, you know, just a whole bunch of information in one, on one day. But you can't tell how much was taken in each part. Um, here the court, you know, the court remanded it to consider, you know, things such as copying, faxing, email, and file maintenance by $100 per hour by paralegal was reasonable. Um, you know, doing... Um, you know, um, scanning by a paralegal, that's clerical. It's not $100 an hour. I know nowadays, I mean, it's not unusual. I was in a very small firm um, 10 years ago, and we scanned everything. But we weren't billing our paralegals at the scanning. That, was a, that wasn't even a billable activity. You note that it was all scanned because you want a record of it. No one throws their bills away. But, you know, that's a clerical operation. Um, now, having said that, and I'm not sure you'd run into it, but if, if you had a situation where they're sending it out to have it scanned by a company and that's charged as an expense and it's reasonable, that would be appropriate if it was in the fee agreement. I hope I'm not confusing anyone. If it's an outside cost, you know, where, you know, copying cost, and I, I haven't seen this and I'm not sure you'd run into it in justice court, but there are a lot of papers. Sometimes you send things to Kinko's to be copied um, in a secure facility at Kinko's. Um, that expense, if it's in the fee agreement, can be charged at what it costs was. You don't have, use as a profit center, you don't add 10, his attorney could not add 10% to that. 
but you know you can that would be just be a charge expense. Um, the other thing, you know, so you can tell what's being charged for. We had one case that was sort of interesting, it's a fee arbitration. The attorney was so concerned about making sure that a document was filed in a, a uh, state agency that he personally took it to the agency and had it filed. And he charged $350 to drive it, drop it off the agency and go back to his office. It took him an hour and a half or so. That's messenger service. That's not the provision of legal services. Um, you know, look at those types of things. It's quality messenger service. Well, you don't know. You don't know. I had I had an arbitration a couple months ago, and the attorney wanted to make sure it got to my mail drop. So he brought it there, and the mail drop would not sign a receipt because he wasn't an authorized messenger service. He was just some person trying to drop off some papers. Fortunately, I, I'm around the corner, so I went over to pick it up. But, you know, those are always issues. The key thing is a look back. And this is an obligation attorneys have, and I would suggest that this is what the court does. The attorneys are required to conclude in the representation to review the services rendered and determine if the fees are reasonable. That's 1984. 98, lawyers are obligated to review the services they have rendered and determine whether ultimately the fees collected are, are, are reasonable. That's that word again, but it's the look back. You've got to go back and look at it. Um, even flat fees, where the attorney um, says at the outset, I'll charge you $2,000 to do this representation, there's still this retrospective analysis that's required uh, to see if the fees were reasonable. Um, <clears throat> and you know, the ethics opinion from 94 and the court decision from 2002 make that absolutely clear. We've agreed at the front end, I'm going to charge $2,000. Well, if you wrote one letter or you went to court with your you know, 10 other cases for evictions um, and basically you were, you know, it, you, know you, you do the calculation, $2,000, how much time do you spend on this? Well, maybe a half an hour. That's $4,000 an hour. Good work if you can get it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, th those are things um, you, you, you can look at. One thing that's so curious, we have all these variations of fees, and we'll get into one that's really interesting, a, a hybrid fee. But at bottom, what the courts are saying is it's still time per hour. Is the hourly rate charge for the services rendered reasonable? For, and we'll get into what services are, but let me just say that briefly. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm a labor attorney and, I, and I'm really good, an ERISA attorney and I charge, which most people don't even know what it is, and I don't even know, what, I can't remember what the letters stand for, charge $750 because it's very complex, and I'm doing a basic eviction, I can't go in and charge $750 an hour. Um, that would be improper because that's not reasonable for what the services are that I'm performing the, the attorney's fees for. Um, flat fees, you know, here, even, you know, it's still advisable to keep contemporaneous records. Um, so what? Yes, ma'am. I want to make sure I understand. So, I remember, and I'm probably wrong about Florida law, but it seems to me like contingent fee and flat fee, we didn't evaluate whether they were reasonable per the actual time log. So, when you're talking about that you're seeing a flat fee or contingent fee along with contemporaneous time logs, 
it sounds to me like this is where it's coming from, is that this look back is always evaluating a contingent fee or a flat fee with respect to what the actual amount of time spent and, right. and a reasonable <coughs> hourly rate. So there's no windfalls to attorneys like there used to be. Exactly, okay. exactly. And what's sort of interesting, there's a question that arises, in Ray Schwartz was, I think, 1999, something like that. That was just about the time computerized time systems were coming into vogue. There was something called time slips. And you could get time slips for some incredible amount of money, and you could put three timekeepers on. Well, now you can put hundreds, if not thousands, of timekeepers on, and it's you know it's a lot less expensive. It's not it's it's a lot easier. And there's a question that arises in my mind: Is an attorney who doesn't keep contemporaneous time records because it's so easy to do um, acting ethically? And I say that in the context of a couple of years ago, and it wasn't an Arizona case, where a court said that an attorney who doesn't use computerized legal research is acting unethically. You know, that's still going is something, I don't know if any of you attorneys, but I remember shepherdizing. Mm -hmm. We would go through and see when the case, is the case within the last two weeks was you know, overruled, and you get all these you know, books upon books of shepherds to see if they've been chained, you know, if there's been any overruling those cases. Um, so that raises a question. Well, I never keep contemporaneous records. Well, you know, the courts for years have now been saying decades You've got to keep contemporaneous records. I think Schwartz said something to the effect that it would be good if they kept contemporaneous records. Now it's getting into why aren't you keeping contemporaneous records? Um, in a case we're going to talk about in about two slides, really gets into that issue. Um, <clears throat> you know, again, you know, contingent fees. The fact that it's a contingency fee agreement is not sufficient to justify a higher fee. Now, well, I took a risk, Your Honor. You know, well, okay, what what else existed on that? You could have someone come in, it's a you know, difficult situation, um, and I'm referring to like Superior Court where it's a, someone who's you know, clear liability, person's become you know, incredibly disabled, paraplegic, and you make a phone call and the insurance company says, well, we have a million dollar coverage, where should we send the check? Do you get a third for that? Do you get 25%? Did you know that they had? Um, you know that, that that you know you don't know the amount of coverage. You don't know how quickly the insurance company would would pay. But you know, it, it, was there really contingency there? Maybe there's a risk. Maybe you get ten thousand dollars for that. You know, maybe two hours, three hours you spent on it, but not you know a third or twenty-five percent. Um, Gerlo v. Less. This is on the form for preparing attorneys. This is an interesting case. Um, this was the first case to establish that the burden. On, is on the party seeking the fees, next to the last paragraph, they have to show a, make a prima facie case of reasonableness when they ask for attorney's fees. Um, this is a change from prior law. In 1965, the Supreme Court of Arizona said, um, it's really on the person who has to pay it to show unreasonableness. Well, in the 45 or so years later, there's an elapsed, Geller v. Lesk, and I know it's only an appellate case, but there's been no appeal of it, there's no change of it, um, they set out the burdens. First, it's the person seeking, the party seeking the fees must make a prior facia case of reasonableness. Then the other side has to show that the fees requested are excessive. Um, and it goes in that you know, the court will not enforce an unreasonable fee, even if the contract provides it. Um, in that case, um, you know, had a third party paying. Uh, the uh, well, make sure I don't get into it. You know, what basically the agreement said is the losing party will pay all fees. 
and this was a default, I believe. Um, and the question arose, was there value received for the work performed? Um, it establishes the burden, and that's the most important part of this case. The burden is going to be on the party seeking the fees. They have to provide you as the judge information that supports their fees. And even if there's no third party there, I would suggest that the obligation of the court is to justice. You know, justice is a process, it's a verb, it's not a noun, but still you have this overriding obligation the attorney has uh, to make sure their fees are reasonable. And I think that, you know, the court has to look at that objectively to make that determination. Um, in this case, in the, in the uh, less case, there were no time records submitted. They just said this is what we're owed, apparently. And they, they asked for $300 an hour, and there was no showing that $300 an hour was reasonable under those circumstances. Um, it was a contingency agreement, and there was no way to show reasonableness. It was no contemporary slugs, just an offhand approximation of hours worked. And I would tell you, that's what we see a lot in fee arbitration, which, as I said, amazes me. Um, there the fee was $1,750.99 per hour. Um, I think they spent 10 hours and got $175,000 or something like that, or 100 hours and got that. Um, and you know, the, you know, to get an enhanced fee, you've got to show more than just, you know, it's got to be an exceptional case. It has to be rather unique. I would suggest it's unlikely the Justice Court is going to get those kinds of cases. I mean, I, I, I have to say that. You, I don't think we would see those kinds of cases in Justice Court. Um, and again, you know, even in this type of contingency fee where there was no one on the other side, it was a default, there's still that look back obligation. Hybrid fees, this is, you know, the case of um, the attorney wins no matter what. In this case, the attorney wanted to charge. This was an ethics request to the bar. Um, basically, dear bar, I will want to charge 33 to 40% contingency of the gross proceeds that are recovered or my hourly charge, whichever is greater. Well, that's really not contingent because I'm going to get at least my hourly rate uh, under all circumstances. And basically, the court said um, it's pretty, it's going to be an unusual case where, where a hybrid fee of that nature is not going to be uh, somewhat questionable um, because that would be detrimental to the client or who's ever paying. It's, you know, heads I win, tails you lose situation. These are some of my conclusions. Uh, Attorney's fees are required to be reasonable no matter how they're calculated. <clears throat> and from, I think, the judge's point of view, if you don't have contemporaneous records, that's good, and the burden is on the attorney who's asking for those fees, that's going to be a problem for the attorney. How do they meet their burden of proof? It's, it's, it's a question. And, you know, we have law firms that have been around a long time, um, and I haven't seen, I, I've seen some issues arise um, that could arise on some of these. I'm not so concerned about, from my perspective, eviction cases where someone's asking, you know, $80. I've seen 80 to 125. We'll get into that in a few minutes. But, you know, where you've got more extensive ones where you've got trials, um, that could be a problem. But the, case, the fees has to be reasonable and the burden's on the attorney. Um, and all fees, no matter how they're structured, there's a look back response, responsibility by the attorney. Um, and that's very important. 
I've seen a fee application where I practiced. We go in for fees, and we, the, I remember it'd be a line at the very end. And we've reduced it by 10%, because, Your Honor, no matter what, we've spent some time that we know probably shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been charged. I would, I, would bill every, I would put everything I did on, a fee, on, on my bills. I would no charge a lot. But I would put that down because I wanted a record of what I did. Even as an arbitrator, I, I'll put in, you know, from this date to that date, receive requests from AAA, filled out form, da 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 da, between, you know, two dates, you know, and I'll just put no charge because there's a record of, of what I've done. I think good attorneys, not to say I was a good attorney, but I hopefully kept my bills straight, um, at least have a record that you can go down and see exactly what I did each, each day and would break out things as, as they went on not just, you know, five or six things during the day. Because otherwise, how was the court to determine whether or not, you know, you, if you put in your prepared complaint, you know, had a summons prepared, you know, how much time was spent for each? Um, next one, cost and expenses other than the lawyer's fees. As I said earlier, um, you have to, other than the provision of legal services in the fee agreement, nothing else is covered. Um, so in this case, the Ireland case, there was a case involving secretarial services. You can't charge separately for non-legal services unless you put in the agreement, this is, we're going to charge you for secretarial services, for overtime, for um, computerized legal research. That has to be in the fee agreement. Otherwise, there's no basis for you to charge it. And it's been interpreted by the bar, the ethics folks, is to provide to any other services, even paralegals, messenger services, things of that nature, um, copying service, outside firm copying services. So the agreement should, when you get the agreement, you know, see what it also includes. It should include these other things if those are the things that are being charged for. Um, some firms charge a percentage surcharge in lieu of actual expenses. They'll say, okay, we've built, you know, 3,000 or $2,000 this, this month, and we charge 0.002%, and that takes care of all our expenses. Have any of you seen any of those? <clears throat> it's somewhat rare. Uh, it's allowed by the, by the rules, um, but they also have to be reasonable. If you ever see one, I think the first question you ask would be, okay, how did you come up with that percentage? And I will tell you, I've been a fee arbitrator 10 or 15 years, I think. I'm not quite sure when I got appointed, other than was when Chaz Workin was um, president of the bar, because he was my partner, and he asked everyone to get involved. Um, but I've only seen it once. In that case, the attorneys who had started, a couple of young attorneys had been with the firm and started their own firm. And I said, well, how where do you come up with this percentage in lieu of charging each, you know, each of these uh, matters? And they said, oh, we just took it from our old firm. Well, that's not the way you do it. It has to relate to your actual an approximation of, of your uh, expenses in your firm. Okay. Oops, wrong way. Okay. Now, this is very good for judges. You can rely on your own knowledge in determining reasonableness of fees. You don't need an expert. You've heard a lot of these cases. Um, I've heard it, you know, I've, I've read them on EDMS. Um, I've looked at a few. I've had people come in asking, uh, for fees, um, and I've asked a couple of questions, and you know, it's starting to get a sense of what's reasonable. <coughs> Talk to some of the judges. Um, you have been on the bench, you know, I would say after about a year, you've got a pretty good sense of what's reasonable, and you can rely upon that. Um, the only, and I'm not sure there's caveat, but advice I would give is on the form. We'll get to the form at the end of this program. 
Um, there are three lines there. I would put in, now I know there's a conflict, should you say more than you have to say or not, but with attorney's fees, I think it's useful to put in why you made a determination. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Um, this is interesting, there was a court, the Struthers case from 94, where they wanted to get a court award, this is the attorney wanting court award fees plus what their client paid them. That's clearly unreasonable. Um, and so, you know, you, you want to look at things that on their face look, so why is the attorney getting all the money here? Um, that's, you know, that's a question that you, you may want to want to consider. Also, don't forget, you're not bound by the agreement that's made between the attorney and the client, particularly in third party situations. I, th I would suggest, and it's clear, I think, from the case law, um, that your determination is whether overall the fees are reasonable. The attorney may have to go back and talk to their client about it and what they charge and why they charge more than was necessary uh, or that the court found was necessary or reasonable. Uh, but that's a determination you need. Um, a couple of things that are not reasonable billing. Billing time to one client, billing another client for work performed during the travel. Um, you're billing a client, and I doubt this comes up much. It, it would come up in law firms where people would fly cross country and while they're sitting on the plane billing their client at $400 an hour, also doing work for another client and billing them for $400 an hour. So at the end of the day, they may have 22 hours of billing time. Um, the, uh, that's generally frowned upon. Uh, billing two clients for the same work. This gets to um, you know the form template complaints, or you know the, the standard when I talk ethics. You know you do an opinion for one client, another client asks basically for the same information. You jazz it up a little bit more, do some little research, and then charge them total for the time it took you to do the first advice uh, paper. Um, billing a number of clients for time spent to create a form. Um, simple, simply stated. You, attorney, and it's only reasonable to bill for the time, um, it's not reasonable to bill for time not actually worked, say it another way, you can only, an attorney can only bill, it's only reasonable to bill for the time they actually worked, and from the judge's point of view, it's, was the time actually spent reasonable, and was the, bill, was the billing rate actually reasonable? Okay, factors worth considering, this is just, I put these next three slides in on basically to let you know you should be able to rely upon what the, what the attorney presents. It may not be accurate, it may not be within this, the realm of what's reasonable, but you know they should not be misleading you. They have to be truthful to you, they can make false statements of material fact, fail to disclose a material fact. Um, attorneys uh, have to be candid. The, the duty of candor is not just telling the truth, but it's the whole truth. It's giving all the information that's surrounding that truth. Um, I, um, and if the attorney does make a, something that you know, says something that's not true, that's misconduct. And you get zinc for it. So I only put these in. I'm not suggesting you call up the bar when someone, when an attorney says something to you that you don't think is quite straight. Uh, I'm not going to suggest you, know, you do any of that. Um, it's your decision. But it's just you should be able to rely upon what an attorney tells you. And I'm sure there are some attorneys, you sort of question everything they tell you, but you know, that's, that's just the way things go. Um, there, and just to complete this theory, there, there is an exception. You may say, well, the lawyer can't give me information because not they testifying there's a rule about that. Yes, but if they can submit something about legal services. Um, let's see, there was one. 
Okay, there was, there was one factor I won't, I won't bring up once because this attorney was 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 very truthful. They said I had to do something because this, this was a, is a pro tem. It was the the statute was said that I had to do it was mandatory. He says I have the statute, and I looked at he I said he said here it is, and he showed it to me and says the court may. I said, counsel, doesn't that leave me discretion? Yes, Your Honor. I said, well, I'm not exercising my discretion. But the key on this one was because the same attorney, I feel very bad for him because his client was standing there. He had, and I, I think I do say this later in my notes, but I'll bring it up now. He had, he gave me, he showed me the bill for attorney's fees. It was $960. First item was $600 meeting with client. The next one was $360 that had the things that you do when you do the things that this attorney was doing for the representation. I said, well, I see what you did for 360, but what's the $600? He said, well, as soon as I sent him with the client, I charged him $600. Well, that's not reasonable because it's not the provision of legal services. And so that, when, and I, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, Charles, uh, whether I should have said it on the record in court. I said, after just knocking him on this mandatory versus permissive, or a discretionary decision, I said, counsel, this is really not your best day. I'm the chair of the fee arbitration committee program of the state bar. And I don't think that meet, meets 1.5. Maybe I ought to read it again. So I don't know, but I figured, you know, but you know, that, you know, you, you should be wary of things of that nature. Um, okay, fee sharing. This is, you may see this, I'm not sure. Um, it may come up where, I don't know if it ever comes up or how the attorneys do it. You know, you have someone come in from one firm and they're taking cases for another. I see, I've done a lot of eviction work, so I see that as a judge for Tim. You see that a lot. Um, and I, I don't think it's a big problem, but where it could be a problem um, is that um, if, if you do, it, it's a division of fees and you can have fee sharing if two firms involved if it's having to do with what each firm does in proportion to what they do, and the client agrees to it. I've never seen, you know, you, know, you may have in eviction hearings where you see the representation where they may say, we may sometimes have another attorney from another firm come in, uh, you know, for these evictions and, you know, when they're scheduled by the court, saves you time because we're going to another, another court, something like that. If the client agrees with that, that's fine. Um, and as long as the total fee is reasonable. Um, where it becomes sort of, and, and it, it's not, if they're on the same firm, it's not fee sharing. Um, where it becomes problematic, and I've seen this actually from attorneys who should know, having done a program once for one of the um, regional bar associations where attorneys stood up and said, well, you know, do we, you know, is it okay to get the obligatory one-third referral fee when we send a personal injury matter to another, to another law firm? Well, no, because you're not, you're not sharing responsibility of the case. You're not doing any work for the case. You're actually fee sharing. Um, generally, the client doesn't know that. And the worst situation it comes up with is um, where the firm that made the referral made the referral because they had a conflict. You know, I represent the company, and the vice president of the company who I've known for years does crosswise with my client. You know, maybe I'm the commercial attorney, not a litigator. And um, he wants to sue them for wrongful discharge. And I said, well, here's a good plaintiff's attorney. Why don't you go see them? And I call the plaintiff's attorney. I'm sending this guy over to you. He'll call you. And I want my one-third. Well, I could not represent that vice president of the company because I represent the company. Yet I'm asking that person to pay me one-third of what he pays to the other attorney. 
No, 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 no. So I, you may, you know, that's maybe good for cocktail conversations. Hopefully it wouldn't arrive from justice court, but, um, you know, that's just sort of generalized information that may be helpful to you. Um, okay, and it's just not fee sharing within the same firm. The little quirk above counsel relationships. Um, I don't know, do you see many of counsels in uh, justice court? May not be where it's generally of counsel of senior attorneys who, you know, they're, they're not, quote, equity partners anymore, so they make them off counsel, or they're a new lateral transfer. They don't want to call them an associate, but they don't want to represent that they're a partner, meaning that whatever they do, the call firm is responsible for, so they make them, quote, off counsel. So generally, the courts don't see that as a problem. Um, civil fee disputes, um, just so you're aware, and I doubt if you'll see these, you don't, we don't do divorces in justice court. Um, but there may be a collection matter, and collection matters from uh, domestic relations matter. Those are not domestic relations matters. Those are considered collection. This, this pro prohibition on contingent fees in divorce or family practice issues only arises to get a certain sum of spousal maintenance or child support or things of that nature, property distribution. Um, but if they're just coming in, say, the court order that, you know, my ex pay me X number of dollars, they haven't paid me, I want the money, and you're looking, you know, the person wants their attorney's fees and look at, oh, it's a contingent fee, that's okay because it's only a collection matter. I just pass that along. I'm not sure yet. Susan was shaking her head up and down that maybe it I've does seen, happen. Yeah, I've seen some collection. I yeah. lawyers mediate some cases which are interesting with a lawyer and their client, the lawyer suing their former client for, oh. for their money. Yeah. I had a question though, and I, I this kind of is it's a sort of I think this is a good place to ask it. Um, when awarding attorney's fees to the prevailing party in a regular case, or um, dealing with a fee dispute between lawyer and client, or dealing with the ethical violations, is this, is the legal standard the same? Is the reasonable standard the lodestar that you've taught us? Does that apply to all three of those situations, or is the legal standard different in those three scenarios? I, I, I have not seen any cases where the court says, well, it's different based upon who's paying. It's different based upon if it's between the third party and the, and the determination by the, uh, by the court, or if it's just between the client and their attorney. Okay. There's, there's, there's no difference there um, that I could see. And I've also seen... You know, I've had conversations with attorneys saying, well, I can't go into court for less than $1,000. Well, but maybe then you don't take this kind of case that's, you know, a $250, $300 case. The standard is not how much, a court, how much an attorney can reasonably come into court for. The question is whether, whether objectively is the fee reasonable? Um, is the time spent reasonable? Is the hourly rate reasonable? Um, I would even suggest, and I think this is within the discretion of the court, it's not reasonable to have an attorney, to have anyone pay, whether it's the client or a third party, you know, where the attorney's fees are assessed, to pay to, to educate the attorney. I don't care, you know, how much education you've had, if you spent your life being a tax lawyer and charged $1,000 an hour, and you're taking a simple eviction case on a one-off, that's not, you know, it took you three hours to prepare and do everything because you don't know anything about evictions. Um, it's not $3,000 worth of legal services. It's not reasonable. So those are the things that I, I think you should consider looking at. Um, the other thing on contingent fees, representing a defendant in a criminal case, and I doubt if anyone asks for attorney's fees, although I suppose there could be a complaint between an attorney and their client if it gets to uh, 
uh, a dispute that's within the $10,000 limit. Um, but if that's the case and you don't want to deal with it, you might want to send them to the state bar fee arbitration program, which is free. Um, you know, and that's, that's, you get uh, independent arbitrator, it's a free program, and you may want to, you know, move parties to that. The coordinator's telephone number is there, it's in your, you know, now you've got copies of it's in your materials, just send them over there, maybe stay the proceeding until it gets done there. I, we've gotten some cases that are referred from Superior Court. Um, so, you know, if that ever becomes a problem, you, you may want to consider that. Now, I promised I wouldn't start off with the ethical rules. But now we're going to get to them. Um, here they are. These are the eight factors. They're not, and don't have to write anything down because we're going to break them out again. Um, they're not exclusive. They can be, you know, there are other factors involved. So let's go through them one at a time. Time and labor, novelty and difficulty and skill required. Is it repetitive? It's, is an eviction case or, you know, even a fact-specific HOA or a one-off contract matter? It's, you know, $7,000 dispute over some work done on some, you know, a homeowner's house. Um, you know, is it, is, is it something that, you know, should not take a lot of time or is it, you know, a form matter or is it rather unique one-off situation? Um, likelihood of the representation will preclude other employment. Um, that usually doesn't come up as a factor. Uh, it's sometimes where it's a last minute thing. Um, and so you've got to, the attorney has to wipe their table clear because the client comes in, you know, three days before they're supposed to show up in court. So that may be a factor to consider. Um, fees customarily charged in the, in the locality. Um, <clears throat> this is what I've seen. Um, I would suggest you're much more knowledgeable than I have, but this is just sort of a sense of what I see charged. I've seen, you know, 80 to $125 on uh, eviction cases. I don't know if that's reasonable on an individualized basis. I think a couple of weeks ago I did well over 100 evictions one morning. You know, a bunch, you know, big stack from one law firm. You put all those together, I don't know what the charge is per hour. And you know what other work was done, but you know I know it had to be the papers had to be prepared, they had to be filed, they had to be you know reviewed, the attorney had to show up, you know you had all those things that had to be done, um, so you know maybe 100 and under quarters is I mean 80 to 100 quarters fair. I saw 150 about a week or two ago. I thought that was a little high, um, you know, I, but I would leave it to, to you folks. Um, one offs I've seen 300. I don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent. Talk to some judges, that seems to be the norm. But that's, again, the standard here, the factor to consider is what's customarily charged in locality. That seems to be what it is. Um, you know, but look at the time and rate. Generally, and this is without any scientific study, it looks like 250 to $300 an hour seems to be the norm. I've seen some flat fee defaults. Well, I've heard of flat fee defaults at 500. Um, those may be a little bit more complex because I suppose they're and I, complex. I use that word uh, sort of broadly. Um, there may be some service issues that require attorney time. You know, you know, talking to the process server, getting that taken care of. You know, but question at the bo at bottom. Even though they're customarily charged, are they reasonable? You know, consider the time that's you know was taken in the individual case, reasonable hourly rate, things of that nature. Um, there's something that Barr publishes every three years called the Economics of Law Practice. It was last published in 2016. 
quite frankly, I didn't care too much for it because it wasn't as, as good as the one for 2013, which actually went down with more specificity. I conveyed that opinion to the bar. Um, I don't know what they're doing because this is 2019. We should be, there should be one published probably a few months after the end of the year. I inquired because I don't want to get us all in trouble by violating anyone's copyright, whether I could actually get one distributed. And um, I was told, well, is the court, did the courts buy one? I said, I don't know. Said, well, if you don't buy one, you don't get one. So um, I don't know if you want to, you know, the court wants to look into purchasing and what ex to the extent they can distribute it for the 2000, you know, when the 2019 one is given, if it's done, and, and as I said, in my opinion, the 2013 one was much better because it would go through plaintiff's litigation, personal injury, it, it would break down what was, what was the hourly rates, it had paralegal rates, I thought much better than the 2016 one, um, but something Charles may want to look at. Um, okay, the amount involved in the, in the uh, amount in, in the results obtained. Um, this is important because if you've got a, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred dollar monthly um, you know, rental and someone's charging two thousand dollars to handle an eviction, that seems a little high to me. Um, if someone's got a seven thousand dollar dispute and they're looking for six thousand dollars in attorney's fees, that seems maybe unreasonable. Um, and we'll talk about things that may factor into that. Um, so, you know, those are, you know, things of that nature. You know, what's really at dispute here? You know, do, do, did the attorney have to spend that much time? Um, and also look at if the firm's, of, you know, even a middling size, do you have an associate doing work and then having that same review re work reviewed by the partner who's charging at a higher rate um, when there are, you know, is there some double billing going on there? Uh, you know, time limitations. Well, let's, let's back yeah. up to sure. the previous slide. I'll do it. Okay, thank you. Oh, no, I can't. Here we go. All right. Let, let's talk about this one because uh, it seems to me that anytime you have an HOA dispute, uh, you, you have to look at number four because the HOA disputes normally don't start generally involving all that much money. And by the time you're done, the attorney's fees can be rather high. Do we have any discussion about this? or? Well, you know what I'm seeing a lot more now, it's not only HOAs, but collections, where the principal is under 500, the principal's under 300, and they're telling me they just spent an exorbitant amount of time to go after that. Yes. Now I want to speak up for the attorney, okay, because I had, it's been a long time, but I have been in this situation, and I remember being in front of Quentin Tolby and saying, Judge Tolby, I apologize that I'm seeking $2,000 in attorney's fees for a $500 claim. However, sir, you will note that this was a business client of mine, and I said, you can go and handle this in justice court yourself. And they filed in representing themselves. And the defendant hired an attorney who filed all these ridiculous motions that I had to come in and file written responses to and make several appearances in front of you, oral argument, to counteract what they were doing. And the, this is my China doll affidavit. Please find something that I did that I didn't need to do. And Judge Tolby said, no, I'm awarding you the $2,000. It does happen. 
and it's justified sometimes. My example was to false. Uh, well, that's yeah. I, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it in a few minutes about you know who's causing the problem of excessive time. I think you know your example is is the perfect example of where it was the other side who now you're seeking to pay for. But and we'll get I'll mention it now. Um, what if you've got a client who's relatively new? You don't know them if you're the attorney, and they need a lot of handholding. But you've won the case. You are seeking the other side to pay for. And in that case, I think it's perfectly proper for the judge to say, well, why do you have these, you know, I see, you know, telephone conversations every day for 30, 40 minutes on this very basic, um, you know, small, not small claims, you know, minor financial matter, $8,000 dispute. What was all that about? And it may not be reasonable to charge anyone for that. And so you could... Say, I, I would suggest that you could you know, give an explanation as to why that's not reasonable and not, not charge the other side. On the defaults, I have to admit I'm not that familiar with them. I've seen the paperwork on them. I'm not familiar with what it takes. If, if it's one where the, you've had to send the process server about three, four, five times and ask for an alternative service, um, there may be some justification there. Um, one thing, though, I, I think I've seen on some where the there's some time spent where the court's ready to dismiss the action, and that's when the attorney ramps up and starts doing things. Whether or not the, the paperwork, the pleadings, to get the matter back on the calendar is justifiable, you know, I, I'd actually ask for your input on that. Um, because then it was the law firm or the plaintiff who caused that additional sums by not you know, seeking service earlier and realizing that they're going to have to go to alternative service and then charging for the time it took to get it back on the calendar. Any thoughts on that? I guess there aren't any. Okay. Um, can I go forward on? Okay. Um, time limitations, you know, again, we talked about that, putting factors aside. Um, nature and length of the client's, you know, relationship. That was, you know, if there's a new client, and you've got this hand-holding situation, should that be paid by a third party? It may not even be, you, you may be able to charge it to the client, but not to the third party. And again, the contract between the attorney and the client as to whether or not the fees charged under that fee agreement are reasonable is not necessarily the same determination the court makes on whether the third party, with the third party pays is reasonable. Because I, I could conceive of a situation where a, a, a judge could say, okay, all those telephone calls, the ones I was just talking about, the hand-holding, I'm not going to, I don't think those are reasonable fees. Um, but if the, if the client then sues the attorney or, or then seeks the attorney through fee arbitration and the attorney can justify, well, look, I kept telling the client, you're in my emails, if you keep calling me, I'm going to have to charge you for it, I could see a fee arbitrator awarding that time and money to the lawyer but not being justified as to the third party. I know of no case law that says that's appropriate, but it seems to me, under everything I've read, that it would be reasonable uh, where it's a third party that has to pay. Um, Lawyer's experience, reputation, ability. Um, you know, that's clear as I, you know, I think I talked about that. You know, there, there, it looks like there, in evictions, there are about four or so you know, firms that really know their stuff in this county. Um, they're fairly, um, you know, they come in fairly knowledgeable in what they need to do. Um, I found them very ethical where, 
you know, an attorney will correct me if I've made an error or going down the wrong path, which I appreciate. Um, but, you know, and I give the example there, the tax attorney, you know, they can't charge $1,000 an hour just because that's their regular rate. That's the standard rate they charge. A um, couple of factors that I, this is sort of my own thoughts. Um, one, and I sort of talked about that. Did one party cause the matter to exceed what would be reasonable, a reasonable period to complete the representation? Well, who caused that? Um, there was one case. Um, oh, here's this one where um, fairly recently just pulled off the ABA blog. This is a big law firm, a Sullivan and Cromwell partner, which is one of these mega firms. Um, their, their client to the deposition would, you know, how much time did you spend to prepare for the deposition? Sufficient. How much is sufficient? The amount appropriate needed. And this guy just went on and on and on. The deposition went on and on and on. Um, you know, can you give me, um, can you give me an estimate of the amount of time? It was completely enjoyable. Um, that, you know, preparation is always a good thing. Um, you know, the attorney has somewhat of an obligation. In this case, the court found the attorney has an obligation to make sure things run run smoothly. You can't just let them go on and on and on. If you're at a, um, in, you know, in, um, I would imagine if you're in court and you've got a witness up there who's just, you know, per, you know, not answering questions that are being asked, and later that party happens to win and wants their attorney's fees, I think you can take that into consideration because does it meet the reasonableness standard? Um, you know, a party has a right to choose their lawyer, but, you know, picking up, you know, hiring an attorney from um, <coughs> Avondale to appear in East Mesa, where it's, you know, and, and I go from Scottsdale over to Avondale and surprise, it's okay with me because I don't have clients and I don't bill on the hour, you know, an hourly rate. Um, you know, is that travel time reasonably to be charged because we're dealing with oftentimes third parties that have to pay? Um, you know, would that be, you know, in a one-off situation where someone, I had one attorney says, well, I had to, you know, I had to drive all the way over here and sit and, you know, okay, that's a factor to be considered, but do you give them 100%? When I practiced, I did not charge for travel in Maricopa County and I only charged 50 cents on the dollar when I traveled outside in the fee, you know, put in the fee room, but, you know, is it reasonable to charge for excessive travel time? Um, you know, are there contemporaneous hour record of hours worked? You know, we started the first number of slides talked about where the courts are very big on that. You need hours because everyone should know, all attorneys should know by this time that if you're going in for fees, you better tell the court how long it took you to do what you did specifically and keep it contemporaneous. Um, and they're not doing that, but that's what the rule is. Um, this flat fee, that was, the, I, I thought of that uh, with the uh, attorney who charged the $600 to sit out. Um, any any um, issues that you've seen? Anyone want to, you know, assist everyone either on the, uh, on the blog or, you know, everyone is sitting here. Any, any questionable issues you've come across that you'd like to discuss? Yes, sir. Attorneys in a mediation, that became, it became very evident they were there just for billable hours. Three and a half hours mediation with no end result um, on a $2,000 piece of broken furniture. I, you know, that is a problem. I, I will tell you, I've seen attorneys in my practice, I've been here since 82. Uh, before that, I was with the government so in Washington and New York, so I really 
didn't have to worry about that. But I've seen over the years situations where it became apparent that the attorneys were just making things go longer than they needed to be um, for apparently no other reason than to gin up the hours or maybe for the, make the other side pay more with their time or whatever. But that is a problem. Um, the problem for that, and this reverting to my mediation background, and um, Judge Dykoff will probably support me on this, anything that goes on in mediation cannot be revealed. So your thoughts that this took three and a half hours over you know, a, a broken piece of furniture, is, you can't tell the judge that, and that, right. that's a problem. But maybe it's an issue if it gets it to trial. Yeah, yeah. And usually that's you know helpful they because were, they, then the. As a matter of fact, they, they were billing. The attorneys in question were billing. Um, their large furniture manufacturers that had hired them. Oh yeah, so yeah, they were yeah. top dollar, and and that's that's a problem. And uh, you know, I, I've seen that happen where you troop in five attorneys. Uh, probably not so much in justice court, or hopefully not at all, but you know, that, that becomes a problem. Yes, sir? In mediation, we, I have occasionally had attorneys, either in HOA or sometimes landlord tenant issues, they come in and they request, you know, let me exaggerate, I probably not quite a thousand, dollars $1,000 an hour. And now the other party wants to settle. I, how do I handle that? Because, you know, I, I kind of tell them not to settle what the attorney wants. I mean, I occasionally will the attorney will go outside and have a little chat. But beyond that, what else can I do? Because the typical answer is, well, if we go to court, I'm going to get it anyhow. The judge allows it. And, of course, I may, I may or may not know if it's true or not, but after I've tried all that I can privately, going in front of the other party, what else can I do? Well, I was Judge Dykoff, although from my perspective, I would, I, I'm going to ask Judge Dykoff to, to discuss that, but I, when, I, when I do mediations, I caution the people, don't talk about attorney's fees, because that's, you always get the attorney, the party will say, well, I'll pay you, but I'm not going to pay your attorney. Because once attorney's fees come up, because they may be really angry at the attorney, and that's not beneficial, but there's not too much you can do. But Susan, your thoughts? Well, uh, yes, I had that same thought or comment from experience. And um, I, I would say attorney's fees and justice court mediations are a big deal, and you can't not talk about them because they're right. so, they drive the bus, yeah. right? I mean, they really are important. They drive that you have to deal with them in settlement. Um, it would be really nice as a mediator to be able to say, I see that you have X amount of dollars as your attorney's fees you're asking for, and you, in your thought bubble, you want to say, and there's no way the judge is ever going to award that to you, right? Because it's too much, and you can't say it, right? You can't say that in best practices, but you know it. And what's really frustrating is when um, the party, the litigant, the attorney may be more understanding, but the litigant thinks, oh, I'm absolutely going to get all my attorney's fees, so I'm not going to mediate or try to settle this in mediation because I'm just going to go to court, and when I win, the judge is going to have to give me all this money because they're confused about what the law is about attorney's fees. Yeah, actually, so, generally, I'm sorry, I apologize. No, please. Actually, on the settlement agreement, you put partial settlement except for attorney's fees, and then you send them home. Well, yeah, that's what uh, we're doing. Then it's happened on a couple of occasions because they want to settle, 
and the attorneys, the attorney directly, you know, the person that I, you know, I'll, I'll pay you what I think I owe you, but I don't want to pay. It's okay. So we do that. But oftentimes, the person is either the tenant or the, uh, the, the, you know, the household owner, if it's an HOA. They do want to get this thing settled. They know that if they keep going, that their expense is only going to walk, walk again. Now, I can't tell them, you know, don't settle because of their attorney's fees. Okay, can I can I make a suggestion? This seems to be off. For, you know, we're talking about attorney's fees in justice court, not mediation. That may be a subject for when we okay. do some mediation training. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's fine. Yes, sir. did have a unique one come up on attorney's fees the other day, and it turned out it was uh, on a default hearing for service by publication. Went through the justification and everything else, looking at everything. Finally, I said, well, counsel, I'm looking at your affidavit request for attorney's fees. And it listed all the hours spent and a, and a rate for it. And I noticed that a lot of the items there were not items that the, I thought the attorney would be doing. Mm -hmm. So I queried him at it. It turned out that he admitted that half of the work was really done by his paralegal. He said, well, then we're going to adjust the amount of rate that you're charging mm -hmm. for it. Yeah, no, and that's, that's, although I, I've always, caught him, I, so we didn't it, argue. <laughs> as, as a fee arbitrator, I've always wondered what do you do when the attorney, well, yeah, I, I know I put 250 but my paralegal does it, and it was really $100 an hour. You know, it's, you, the attorney at least gets what, you because know, you asked the question, uh, that's the $100 an hour. Says, well, you, but, you know, I'm just going to wipe, you know, wipe it up, because the question, does the blue pencil, red pencil rule, do you, they're in contracts, in employment contracts, is if, if a provision is not reasonable, the court just strikes it. I'm not sure what the, there's no case law I'm aware of with fees on whether, well, you didn't spend $250 an hour, you didn't do the work, I'm gonna strike that entry. Good luck, I don't know what happens. Um, but I could see, you, you probably never have an attorney's fees application from that, <laughs> you probably get noticed a lot. Uh, I wanna get, I just have a few minutes, but I want, yes sir. I had a case I presided on that the, uh, Parties were suing over a countertop that allegedly had not been installed properly. Two attorneys um, leading up to the trial, they filed motions, they filed, they went to conclusions of law, findings of fact a month before the trial. Trial was six hours, <laughs> two expert witnesses, the plaintiff brought in. Anybody needs any information on countertops? But I ruled in favor of the uh, company because the uh, person that purchased the countertops three years had gone by and they still hadn't done it. They were using the original countertops that they put in. I got an affidavit and application for attorney's fees from the uh, uh, from the. Uh, and uh, they wanted $23,000. Well, actually, that's a great lead-in, because what I want to do now is go back to the future, the first one of the first slides. Let's look at the form. Now, I'm, the form's up here, but it should also be in your materials. It's easy for me to read off the materials. But, you know, what would you do when you're reviewing that? Um, you know, first paragraph, you review the fees on a certain date. Okay, the time and spent is or is not reasonable. Do they need all those depositions? Do they need six hours in court? Um, you know, was that reasonable? You say, no, it wasn't. You know, from what, you, from what you're telling me, maybe particularly at the end of the day, if the person never had them replaced immediately, uh, that would sort of indicate that maybe all this time was just, you know, spinning wheels. 
So, you know, you fill out, you know, what you'd want to, but, you know, is or is not reasonable. This is great because in fee arbitration, we have a, we have a template also, but you have to write stuff here. Just put a little check mark. This is great. Um, was it novel or difficult issue? No. It was, you know, were services provided and were they appropriate? It wasn't, you know, any legal um, heavy lifting. Um, are they, char you know, are they customarily charged? You know, in a, in a case that's less than $10,000, do you have a lot of depositions? Do you have a six-hour trial? Do you have multiple expert witnesses? Um, maybe not. Um, are the requested fees appropriate given their experience? Well, maybe they are because they did, you, maybe you have some sense that, yeah, they did all this work. So yeah, that was, that was appropriate. Uh, given their background. If they were a new attorney or didn't do this work on a regular basis, didn't have that background, um, maybe not. Um, you know, are they consistent with awards in similar cases? I would suggest that in a case that's less than $10,000, $28,000 worth of attorney's fees, which meant the other side probably spent somewhere between twenty-five dollars and thirty, fifty thousand dollars and less than $10,000 dispute is probably not consistent with attorney's fees award in other cases. Um, there wasn't a, re a default judgment, so that would not apply. Um, there wasn't a motion for summary judgment, and that, you know, you sort of look at if there were motions for summary judgment filed. You know, was it reasonable? I mean, it seems to me if whether or not a countertop is good, bad, or indifferent, that's pretty fact-oriented. I don't know if you can get that through. You may have experts, but you don't have competing experts. Um, you know, and, and you need the person to explain, you know, I, I, think, you, I think summary judgment would, may not be appropriate that, although having said that, I've, as an arbitrator in the past few years, I've seen a lot of, where they, now they're starting to allow motions for summary judgment, a lot of more summary judgment motions coming forward, which may go back to the question someone raised earlier about, you know, doing things just for the attorney's fees, but I won't comment on that. Um, was there extensive discovery? Well, yes it was, apparently, so that's a factor. Uh, whether or not it was appropriate, that's something else. Um, there, were there multiple court appearances? Maybe not. It sounds like just have the trial, maybe the pretrial. Um, and then, you know, what do you consider results obtained? And you say at the, bottom, at the end of the day, are they reasonable or not reasonable? And I think, as I said earlier, you know, these extra lines, um, because the reviewing court's going to wonder why, I think back to McDowell Mountain, where the court in that case, as you may recall, just cut the fees in half. And the, the judge, um, the trial judge, that was a Superior Court case, the Court of Appeals said, no, there was no explanation. I think you need to give more of an explanation, particularly where you're cutting fees and saying, you know, this was a you know, matter of eight, you know, less than $10,000 or $8,000 claim. Uh, the attorneys spent much too much time on, on depositions. There were, you know, obvious factual disputes at the five motions, cross motions for summary judgment. I would use that because the court that's going to be reviewing, I guess it's done by a commissioner, uh, if they do take it up on appeal, um, that's what I think the commission's gonna rely upon. You know, what do you say there as to whether or not the commissioner will uphold or, or, uh, or not uphold your award of attorney's fees? Okay. Um, what would you do? Yes, what? I, I gave him 5,000 and then when he filed a 20 page motion for reconsideration, Gotta be using them at that point. <laughs> 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 well, I had I had a case when I was when I was practicing. It was a thirty-five thousand dollars dispute. Um, they won thirty-one thousand. They came in for thirty-two thousand dollars in attorney's fees. 
Um, our last offer was 5000 and the judge awarded $5,000 in Superior Court. Well, you have those things. I know another case, it was a half million dollar case. At the end of the day, I think it ended up there were $800,000 in attorney's fees because this case kept going, bouncing back and forth. It was a big, but it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay, um, any questions? I've gotten almost to the end of my time, uh, but you know we do have a few more minutes. Any questions that you've seen come up or you're, you know, and your wildest dreams won't come up, but they may, uh, that you've thought about. Um, any questions whatsoever? I don't see any on the floor. Anyone listening to this on the blog may may or may not have some. So, Charles, if there's nothing further, I want to thank you all for letting me speak to you today. And I hope it was better than 2016 or 2018. Thank you. Well, let's take a 10-minute break.